A new era in human spaceflight. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Four astronauts successfully launched and docked in the International Space Station this week, flying on the first commercially designed and built spacecraft, SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule. The three NASA astronauts and one Japanese astronaut now join three already on board the station, bringing the total crew to seven, the most crew for a long-duration operational flight. So how did we get here, and what's to come with NASA's commercial partnerships? We'll talk with Florida Today's senior space reporter Emery Kelly about commercial crew and the future of public-private partnerships. Then, as more and more astronauts head into orbit, what do we know about the impact of space travel on the human body? We'll speak with Florida Space Institute associate scientist Dr. Esther Beltran about the impacts of microgravity on the human body and what those seven ISS astronauts are doing to keep healthy in space. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on America's Space Station. Dragon SpaceX, soft capture confirmed. Dragon copies, and we see the same. NASA's Mike Hopkins, Victor Glover, Shannon Walker, and JAXA's Soichi Noguchi arrived at the International Space Station Monday night, just 27 hours after launching on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket from Florida's Kennedy Space Center. Resilience SpaceX. Docking sequence is complete. Welcome to the ISS, Resilience. It's the first operational mission for SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule, part of a NASA partnership to ferry astronauts to the International Space Station. It's also ushering in a new era of spaceflight, one that is leveraging private companies, says Space Florida's Dale Ketchum. To me, the biggest thing is that this was unlike every other launch of humans into space before. This was a commercial transaction, and it was simply the government buying a service. So how did we get here, and what's ahead? Well, joining us now to look at NASA's commercial crew program is Emery Kelly. He's the senior space reporter at Florida Today. Emery, thanks for speaking with us. Sure, it's good to be here. So commercial crew, this has been more than a decade in the making. Um, Can you kind of bring us up to speed? How did we get here? So the program was, the commercial crew program was established because at the end of the space shuttle program, there wasn't really a contingency in place. So commercial crew was built around a time when NASA um, and White House administration officials were hoping that sooner rather than later, a commercial company uh, would come along and be way more prepared to send astronauts to the International Space Station on their own than they had been before. So, uh, you know, as we know now, SpaceX and Boeing were later selected. So instead of NASA going through the paces and designing and then procuring a company to build a vehicle, NASA would let the, the companies build their vehicle and all their platforms and all that, and instead just kind of use it as a service. Um, sort of like NASA, you know, doesn't go to Boeing and tell them how to design a 737. Instead, NASA just goes to Boeing and offers to, you know, buy time on a Boeing. They don't buy airplanes, but, you know, they, they could rent them, essentially. And there were um, several kind of milestones that, you know, both of these companies had to hit um, 
kind of proving that the vehicle was safe, including for SpaceX, um, the launch of Bob and Doug on DM2 back in May, um, leading the way to Sunday's launch, which which looked flawless from the ground, but there was a bit of an issue um, on the, the initial first hours of, of the Crew-1 launch. What was the problem, and how did ground controllers solve it? So um, pretty early on, they noticed that in Crew Dragon, it's propellant tanks, which hold uh, two types of, of propellant. And when those when when they come into contact with each other, they they ignite. So there's no ignition source needed, just those two propellants. And obviously, in space, um, sometimes you either need to warm things up so they don't freeze, or you need to cool things down because heat is building up in inside of a spacecraft. In this case, in an effort to prevent the two propellants from uh, freezing or at the very least getting too cold, there are what are called uh, heater quads. Um, and they noticed that three of the four heaters that were trying to keep the propellant warm um, pretty quickly after launch didn't seem to be doing uh, the best of jobs in, in doing that. Uh, the temperature was stable, but when looking at it, they found three or four weren't working, which was a mission parameter violation. Um, at, at minimum, they needed two of four. So, you know, it, it, it kind of for a minute there seemed like if they couldn't get this resolved, they might need to have discussions about how to proceed and if they could proceed to the ISS. Um, but what happened was the SpaceX team's back on the ground in Hawthorne, California, reset the system yes you know the, the long joke of turn it off and turn it back on again seemed to do the trick and and what had happened was uh either on accident or some kind of glitch the parameters for those heaters had been set way too conservatively so when they came online the first time uh they just weren't uh performing as expected so once they kind of relaxed those parameters a little bit, all seemed to go well, and all four came back online so they could proceed to the ISS as planned. And during that uh, coast to the ISS, there were a few surprises. We saw uh, initially, we saw what the zero-G indicator was, a, a little a baby Yoda or, or the child from the Mandalorian. Um, and also we got a tour of the capsule and a bit of a surprise for Victor Glover. Um, what did his crewmates give to him? So Glover got uh, a really nice kind of moment, uh, maybe even a little bit of a tearjerker moment there. Uh, when astronauts complete their basic training, which is these days it's about two years, when they wrap it up, they get a silver pin, a traditional pin. It looks like a star flying through a, a circle with, with three lines. Um, but you don't get the upgraded gold version of that pin until your first flight in space. So Commander Mike Hopkins took a minute to kind of take Lover aside on the live stream and present him with his gold pin. But once you've passed that 100-kilometer mark, you then get a gold pin. And we have one member of our crew who uh, does not have the appropriate uh, accoutrement for his <laughs> uniform, and so it's worth to be able to give Victor Glover his gold astronaut pin no, for passing okay. 100 kilometers. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. There were a lot of fist bumps and hugs, and uh, I, I think a good five or six or seven minutes later, he was still, you know, smiling ear to ear. Uh, I mean, I would be too, but it was it was a nice moment. 
I don't think Victor Glover has stopped smiling <laughs> every time I see him on the screen, right? <laughs> yeah, he has not. <laughs> uh, so the crew docked um, uh, Monday going into uh, Tuesday night. Uh, there are now seven people on board the station. Um, what's the mission ahead uh, for this expedition? So the, these folks are going to spend most of their time on the ISS's core mission, which is science. Uh, they'll be helping conduct them. Obviously, there is a pretty good backlog of, of science right now. But every time a cargo mission is flown up, there's more science going with it. So they'll have plenty of work to do. But they also need to, they have to, it is a requirement in their schedule to squeeze in a lot of exercise. Um, you know, due to the uh, low gravity nature of space, if, if you don't exercise a lot, you could you could face some health consequences. Uh, of course, they'll also have some time to maintain the International Space Station if anything comes up. And uh, it, it sounds, from, from the sounds of it, it sounds like uh, they get to chat with their families uh, more often than it seems like we think they might. Uh, so I believe someone said they talk to them every night, which is kind of nice. Uh, this is not the only SpaceX commercial crew mission. Um, it is the first operational one, but it's the first of many. Um, what's on the horizon for uh, for SpaceX, NASA, and, and this commercial crew program? So moving forward, a Crew Dragon capsule will be docked at the ISS uh, pretty much permanently for the foreseeable future. There will always be one Crew Dragon at the ISS. Um, and then combined with SpaceX's cargo dragon vehicle, um, it's, it's going to be pretty busy for them. And this is their, you know, Elon Musk has said this is their most important top priority right now. Obviously, SpaceX has a lot of other things under their belt, like the Starlink Internet and uh, Starship, the latter of which has gotten some small contracts for moon-related uh, development. But right now, uh, getting cargo and people to the ISS is... SpaceX is sort of most sacred task, if you will. But when is the next um, crew mission and cargo mission? Are, are we have anything coming up quite soon? Yeah, so in early December, we'll see SpaceX's next cargo mission. Uh, that will be called CRS-21, so the 21st cargo mission for SpaceX. And I believe they said they're looking at very late in the first quarter of 2021 for the crew two mission. Uh, so maybe it's fair to say the first half of, of 2021 is when the next four astronauts would fly um, on a crew dragon to the ISS and sort of uh, replace uh, the four that, that flew recently. And what about Boeing? Um, they also have a contract with NASA to provide these uh crew transportation services how is work progressing getting its vehicle uh, ready for astronaut flights so there was originally some talk about boeing getting to refly its previously unsuccessful test flight which occurred in december 2019 there was some talk about them getting to refly that test flight with no astronauts um perhaps in december um that's looking like it's going to be no earlier than january now Perhaps, uh, again, perhaps it's just safer to say the first quarter of 2021, uh, Boeing continues to see some software issues with its capsule, which is called Starliner. And, um, but, but Boeing is, a, is still a critical part of the commercial crew program, and, and, and it's much 
you know, it's, it's, it's very much expected that they will also be able to send astronauts to the ISS along with SpaceX, which will make it kind of a crowded place and make science even, you know, the, the amount of science that the ISS pumps out even, even more. We've been speaking with Emery Kelly. He's the space reporter at Florida Today. Emery, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Still to come, the human body and space travel. How are astronauts staying healthy in microgravity? Are we there yet? Is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. There are now seven people in space right now, the most on the International Space Station for an extended mission. As more and more astronauts head into orbit, what do we know about the impact of space travel on the human body? Are We There Yet's Nelly Ontiveros spoke with Florida Space Institute Associate Scientist Dr. Esther Beltran about the impacts of microgravity on the human body and what those seven ISS astronauts are doing to keep healthy in space. Welcome, Esther. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And can you please tell us what is microgravity and why do scientists are so interested in looking at it? Well, microgravity means that there's a partial, a little fraction of gravity uh, in that environment. So it does not mean that there's no gravity. It's just very little and that little gravity is changes how we work, how we perform, how our, our body functions in space, how plants grow, everything. And so that is part of what it's going to be if you are free floating in space, and then also if you go to other planetary surfaces. And so does that mean that space has just low levels of gravity? It's not like it's non-existent. Well, it is... When you, when you move from Earth, every body, every, every planetary surface, if it's big enough, it has a gravitational pull. So when you move beyond that force or that, space, that area, that length of, uh, of space that you um, are not pulled anymore from that planet or that surface, then you experience microgravity. So right now the space station is orbiting in low Earth orbit, and then there's a small amount of gravity. So when you go to another surface, another planetary surface, or to the moon, you experience a gravitational pull of that surface, of that body, celestial body. So microgravity is a small partial amount of gravity. When you are in transit between uh, objects or celestial bodies, then there's no gravity. And then when you go back to another surface, then that body of celestial uh, object creates a gravitational pull according to the mass. And it's, there's a lot of physics involved in that. But yeah, that's more or less what it is. <laughs> and so what are some of the things that humans experience during the launch? So while they're exiting the mm -hmm. Earth's atmosphere? Okay, so first of all, uh, they experience a small G's that they call it, like a gravitational pull. Uh, this launch that we just saw yesterday, it was exciting because they didn't have a whole lot of G's. They call it G's, it's like how many gravitational uh, 
times you are on top of what you experience here on earth. So they experience that in launch because there's an acceleration process. And then when they get to that orbit, then that acceleration stops and you fear experiences free floating, which is the microgravity. So there's a lot of changes in that launching period. Also, once you get to microgravity at the beginning, uh, it just changes your fluids, how your cardiovascular uh, system is going to distribute the fluids in your body. So we do have a lot of fluid and a lot of blood in our legs, in our lower body, right? Because gravitational pull takes that to the, to the ground. Uh, but when they're up there, then that definitely is ch- changing. So then you have a more even distribution. And that is also sending signals to the body, to the kidneys, to regulate bo- um, body fluids and volume. And it's a, all sorts of changes, physiological changes that will go on there uh, at the beginning of the process, at, then le- a little bit later on, and then towards the end, whatever the missions they, they plan for the missions. So, for example, these four astronauts who just launched on Sunday, uh, they're going to spend six months over there yes. in the space station. Yes. And, you know, they, of course, they don't have to deal with weight. As you mentioned, um, the fluids change it. So what are some of the things that they ha- they're going to have to deal with um, you know, to stay healthy up there? Well, they will have to change, yeah, they deal with a whole lot of things. So there's, uh, there's the uh, space motion sickness. Some people get sick in space when at the beginning of the process, then, then you get used to it. That's uh, usually lasts no more than three days. Some people feel it more than others. Uh, then there's also the fluid shifts at the beginning uh, where you want to eliminate a lot of the water that, that is going to the, um, to the torso because it legs don't have enough gravity now to, to pull all that blood, uh, bloody to the legs. Then it's also uh, getting used to that space, how you move around. And um, they usually work out two hours a day. They have a hectic day. They usually have uh, busy days, you know, with all of the experiments that they have to run. And then they also have to keep their muscles and their bone mass healthy for their return to Earth. So there's a whole lot of things that happen and a host of uh, procedures that they have to go through to work on the experiments, but also to keep themselves healthy. And, and happy, right? So they also have to eat, they have to sleep, <laughs> they have to work in this uh, environment. And if they want to go outside uh, to do some repairs or some work, and then they have to do uh, another process protocol to be able to put the suit on, make sure that they don't have what it's regularly will be called the bends, like the nitrogen getting out of your system. So there's a procedure for all of that to be safe. And um, so it's, it's a wide variety of issues that happened. But six months is what it has been determined to be the healthy part of uh, planning of the time that it will be enough for humans to recover once they come back to Earth. So if they, the longer you stay on orbit, the more difficult it is for the body to go back to normal. Wow. And talking about how many times they orbit Earth, does anything happen to the human sleep cycle 
where they're up there. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's difficult to sleep. I think uh, a lot of asanas have told me that at the beginning you're too excited and it's difficult to sleep, but they also are have been very busy. You know, they're busy people and they're busy throughout the day. Um, but what happens though, the sleep cycle, uh, they have uh, a work schedule. Uh, NASA Houston uh, calls them up and wakes them up in the morning. Every Usually uh, the astronauts ask for whatever favorite music it is that they like. And every day they, they wake them up with one, one of the favorite musics. It, it, every day is different, every song, you know, so, and, uh, and then they get up, uh, they get cleaned, they do all of those things, uh, and then they set up to work. Um, but they, what I've, what I, they've told me a lot is that they enjoy their uh, time when they prepare meals. So they do all of those things and then go back to work again. The space station is quite large. So they spend a whole lot of time doing the experiments. And then the time that they go back together to meet is uh, during those occasions and social times, right? And then the, at night comes, they turn the lights down. Um, so there's no up or down in space, but they find their places. They have their own uh, areas for sleep. And then they turn the lights down, but then the orbit is continuing going on, right? So the sun and the moon, you can see it up orbiting all the time. It's just an artificial way that you can set up your sleep cycle. And, you know, going back to what you said, that the longer you stay, the harder it is for your body to go back to normal. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? So when astronauts come back to Earth, uh, what does your body have to do? in order to go back to what it was yeah it is difficult uh, it depends you know uh usually what they said is we they have been many studies and the studies the data has shown that six months is the best time more than six months is more difficult but it depends how prepared you are too so when you come back to earth uh, what they do is um prepare them for launch uh for descent Right, So there's a fluid loading process where you get more fluids that you want to have because then more fluid in your body will go down to your legs again. And then, uh, then you get ready uh, to go into the, uh, into the capsule that's going to bring you back to, um, to Earth. But then when you get to Earth, uh, it depends if it's a landing uh, on Earth, right, on soil, or if it's on a water splashdown, they call it, right? So for the next missions for Orion going to the moon is going to be a splashdown. So they're going to go on the ocean <laughs> and there's going to be waves and things like that. Right now, when the astronauts come back, they, they land on, on, uh, on land and then they have to be recovered. So when they come back, sometimes they're a bit disoriented and it's hard for them to walk a little bit. But their muscles uh, and their bones, depends on how long they stay there, um, become a little bit weaker. So they have to recover from that. And it doesn't really take them that long because it has been six months. It doesn't take them that, that long. But if it takes them, if they stay there in those conditions more uh, or longer, when they come back to Earth, it will take them even much longer to recover. But you know, we, we've worked out different things and different protocols. Uh, everybody's different. Um, you know, so, yeah, it is, it is fun. They're also happy to be back most of the time, too. So. 
And so, of course, we are trying to push towards exploration in Mars. You know, of course, we're focusing uh-huh. on going back to the moon and then at some uh-huh. point at Mars. But if our, if our body doesn't deal so well with microgravity and in space, do you think it's possible for us, you know, to establish uh, maybe a civilization in other planets? Yes, um, because when you have what happens, so on the moon, there's gravity on the moon. There's one sixth of the gravity. There's, there's enough gravity to keep us there, right? And then when you, when you go to Mars, there's one third of the gravity. So all of those surfaces, all those celestial bodies have their own gravity. The Earth has its own gravity that we've been used to it. And because it's Earth and we are human livings on Earth, we decided to call it that 1G. So 1G is the standard uh, 9.8 meters per second square of acceleration that we get used to be in here. When you go to another surface, you have also that gravity. And usually humans, the way we've been designed um, and how we evolved here on Earth, we, we need to have some gravity. It's easier for us and it's important for us. But it doesn't have to be the gravity that we have here on Earth. It could be other uh, smaller amounts or bigger amounts. Now, the smaller the amount, the more difficult it is for us to adapt. And that's why we have the six months uh, time frame. But if you go to another gravitational pool, um, then you will have the regulations of your own system that will give them the signals that you are okay and then distribute all your physiological parameters again. Now, there the studies saying that maybe you need more or less, uh, but I do definitely think that if you can set up a lunar base and, and be okay, and then also a Mars base and, and be okay because you have gravitational pool there. Yeah, you just have to get used to it. Yes, you just have to get used to, to that force. And then also if there are certain issues that come up, then we find countermeasures to, to uh, prevent uh, issues that will come up, right? So it's always uh, in, in medicine, in space medicine, we always want to be proactive, you know, pro, uh, prevent problems from happening. So, of course. Yeah. That was Esther Bertram, Doctor of Medicine and Scientist of the Florida Space Institute. Thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome anytime. <laughs> That's going to do it for this week's show. Stay connected online. Visit wmfe.org slash space or give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. We're at A-W-T-Y space. On Facebook, just search for Are We There Yet podcast. You can always shoot me an email, Are We There Yet at wmfe.org. Don't forget, you can get more content and stay connected away from your radio. This show is also a podcast. It's available on NPR One, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do listen to the show on a podcast, be sure to rate and review wherever you do listen to it. That's how we get more people to explore space with us. And don't forget, if you go onto our Facebook page and like us at Are We There Yet Podcast, You'll get live streams of all the big launches like Crew-1 pushed right to your mobile device. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's space station. Editorial guidance this week from Nicole Darden-Creston. The show's intern is Nelly Ontiveros. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. 
Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.